Hello guys and a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that each week tends to look at some of the more obscure, long forgotten or unfamiliar solved and unsolved cases from UK criminal history. And bringing it to you as ever is me, Paul, the host and the true crime enthusiast of the show's title. And as ever, I thank new friends and old for joining me. I hope this episode finds everybody good and well. First of all, big thanks to the latest Patreon supporters of the show, who I hope have or are enjoying the seven bonus episodes that come out on the first of each month. So the latest one has only been up for a couple of days. That's Sarah Carroll, Angela Santos, Maggie James, Bill Huber and Brenton Williams. Cheers guys, it means the world and I'm glad of the support. I didn't intentionally miss thanking anyone last week. As I've explained before, I play catch up sometimes depending on when I get pledges against when I'm able to record. So I'll always get those name checks in and it will never be more than a week that passes till I do so. For anyone else interested in becoming a supporter of the show... You can head on over to the True Crime Enthusiast on Patreon and see what becoming a supporter of the show has to offer. Currently, there are seven monthly bonus episodes are available now for supporters, plus an assortment of stickers which we all enjoy, along with some other offers. I'm always happy to exchange show stickers, so any other podcast hosts out there who are listening and you'd be interested in that, by all means, please get in touch. I've already got a few ace ones from some great pods and they all go on a board in front of where I record the show. So I like to build that up. I must also say special thanks this week to Wigan Today reporter Rachel Howarth who did a fantastic write-up of the show recently concerning the previous episode The One Woman A Week Murders that a link to the article will be with that episode show notes. And I'm also pleased to say that a few weeks ago I got the opportunity to have a fun chat with Stacey who's the host of the Rough Giraffe podcast and the co-founder of the Brit Podscene network that the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is a part of. And I believe that our conversation will be featured in a shortly upcoming episode of Stacey's podcast. So when I know exactly, believe me, I shall share the bollocks out of it. So not only do I have a promo to share with you this week, but I'm also going to do something that I haven't for a while and recommend a blog also. The blog's called No Remorse, and it's written by a long-time friend of the show, true crime writer Andy Childlow Parish. Andy not only supports some of the best true crime podcasts, he also writes content, and as well as submitting a piece on the previous listener-created episode of the show, he's also written for the likes of UK True Crime as well. I did mention previously that he had planned his own blog. Well, it's arrived now, and in No Remorse, Andy focuses upon tales of killers who've committed the darkest and most horrific crimes. It is a fledgling blog, because it's a relatively new one, but I like what I've read so far, and I recommend that you go and have a look too, because I'm sure it's going to go places. A link to the No Remorse blog can be found with the show notes this week. So this week's promo comes from Erin and Shay, who host the Texas-based true crime podcast, All Crime No Cattle. Every true crime Thursday, they bring you a well-researched and presented case of Texas true crime, and there's some great tales featured. So if you want to hear all about the Texacana Phantom Slayer or the Broomstick Killer, to name just a couple, then head on over to All Crime No Cattle. Here's Erin and Shay to tell you some more. Hey, true crime fans, I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. 
We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Cheers for that, guys. You can find a link to the show with my own show notes, or you can get it on any of your usual podcast platforms, iTunes, Podcast Addict. You know the drill by now, I'm sure you do. For this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've delved into the back catalogue of cases that I first presented on the blog site. So this week's case from the late 1990s may be a case that's already familiar to some listeners. Despite the magnitude of it though, it remains today a largely forgotten case in the UK with very little available to research about it. But this is where having a good library at home comes in handy and as I've had a book about the case for years, I'd always planned to cover it on the show at some point. The case details a campaign of terror by an individual with an immense disregard for public safety and one who would have undoubtedly gone on to become a mass murderer had he not been caught when he was. Who was he? Well, get comfy and please join the true crime enthusiast as this week we recount the exploits of an individual whose calling card was Welcome to the Mardi Gras Experience. The terror began on December 6th, 1994. Six individual parcels, each one about the size of a hardback book and wrapped in blue Christmas wrapping paper with gold stars on it, were that morning delivered to six different branches of Barclays Bank in London. The address on each parcel had been carefully typed out on an old-fashioned typewriter, then cut out and taped to each package, and each package had been sent first class, with the stamp being franked as being sorted at 5.13pm the previous evening, December the 5th. In the bottom left-hand corner of each parcel was stuck a photocopied picture of four men wearing black suits and ties and sunglasses in a scene that looked like a mock-up still from the Tarantino film Reservoir Dogs. On the photocopied picture was the caption, Welcome to the Mardi Gras Experience. A part-time clerk working at the Hampstead High Street branch, Bally Hari, received burns to her arms and hands when a Christmas present delivered with that morning's post had exploded as she'd opened it. Just four minutes later, a few miles away in the Ladbroke Grove branch, a clerk named Martin Grimsdale was temporarily deafened when one of the parcels exploded as it was opened. Quick-thinking staff raised the alarm and called each branch of Barclays in London in an attempt to halt the opening of the morning post. The four other parcels that had been sent were recovered at different branches across West London without detonation and the packages were examined. The bombs were found to have been concealed inside empty double plastic video cases with a larger photocopy of the Mardi Gras logo placed in the sleeve. Each was clearly homemade and consisted of a spring-loaded bolt with a sharp nail fixed to one end. Fastened onto the end of this was a shotgun cartridge that had been primed with firework gunpowder and loosely packed with ball bearings. Because they'd been so loosely packed, they'd not exploded outwardly as the bomber had intended, but a forensic expert who examined them was to later say that if these cartridges had been packed properly, although homemade and basic, each device could easily have killed whoever opened it. 
SO13 of the Metropolitan Police were tasked with investigating these bombings, and the inquiry, codenamed Operation Heath, quickly ruled out any links to any mainstream terrorist organisation being involved. The devices were too crude, the target was unlikely, and as one detective on the case later stated, The target was wrong, the technology of the device was wrong, it was real kitchen table stuff. The first line of inquiry to be undertaken by investigators was to try and source the device's components and to examine the mechanics of how the device had been made. Another team concurrently combed Barclays personnel files and customer complaint files working on the premise that when a commercial organisation is attacked, the most likely culprit is either a disgruntled customer or a current or ex-member of staff. Perhaps the bomber was someone with a mechanical or engineering background, in which case if these parameters were all put together, it may narrow down the field of suspects somewhat. Police had decided that this was the beginning of an extortion campaign, but they had no word from the bomber about any ideology behind the attacks or any possible ransom. Just two days later, that was to change. On December the 8th, 1994, a typewritten letter containing the now infamous logo on its envelope was received by police. The letter demanded £2,000 per day, 365 days a year, and detailed a method of communication back and forth and of how to pay the ransom. Barclays were to produce promotional dummy-looking Barclay cards and give them away free with magazines under the guise of being a promotional offer, but they were actually able to be used as a cash card, and only the bomber would know, and only the bomber would have a PIN number that could activate the cards, which was to be given to him through a coded message in the personal column of the Daily Telegraph newspaper, no later than December the 10th. Chillingly, the letter went on to warn, in the event of a negative response, all Barclays staff will be regarded as dispensable targets. The letter was signed Mardine Graham. The Mardi Gras bomber had played his opening hand. As is commonplace with extortion attempts, a strict news blackout was imposed, hoping that lack of knowledge about any progress in the hunt for him may make the bomber make a mistake or lull him into a false sense of security. But despite this, it was important to try to establish a line of communication with him, so police cooperated and placed this advert in the Daily Express personals column on December the 10th. OK, Mardine Graham, sorry was late, I was confused, please explain, Richard. They heard nothing, Mardi Gras never replied and had gone to ground. In the absence of any further communication, detectives worked through their enormous list of disgruntled customers, employees and ex-employees with grievances looking for a suspect. But this mammoth task led to nothing. It was to be over five months before Mardi Gras was heard from again. On May 15th, 1995, Barclays Bank head office in Northampton received a second demand letter from Mardi Gras in which he detailed a new approach to his campaign. Rather than attack banks, Mardi Gras had now decided to select random people. There was an added bonus to doing this for the bomber. It spread the bombing campaign while still keeping the pressure on Barclays. It would also massively waste police time as they'd been now be forced to do a detailed check on the targets, searching for any possible link between them, however tenuous. 
and of course in the back of their minds was the thought that there might not be any link at all. Each device was sent accompanied by some sort of reference to Barclays Bank, usually a piece of paper bearing the slogan with the compliments of Barclay Card. More devices were then sent, one to an address in Peterborough which arrived on the 19th of May. The next arrived at a shop in Dimchurch in Kent on the 1st of June. And on the 9th of June, the Crown and Anchor pub in Chiswick received a package. And thankfully this was the only one of the three to explode, although nobody was seriously hurt. Three more, again sent to random people, were dispatched over a two-week period following this. The first, however, was sent to Barclays' head office and consisted of a rifle bullet surrounded by gunpowder and lead pellets packed inside a plastic bottle. This device was sent deactivated, however, as it did not contain a firing pin. This set a pattern that would continue into early 1996. There'd be a flurry of activity from Mardi Gras. He'd send devices out in succession to random private addresses with the targets scattered around a wide area with no discernible pattern. He also experimented with different disguises for his bombs. They were sent disguised as rolled up copies of magazines, as hollowed out books, or in his classic wrapped present guise. He would switch tactics from using his favoured parcel type bomb, to then use a crude and homemade anti-personnel nail bomb, designed to explode into somebody's face, to then use a briefcase with a helium gas cylinder that had been emptied and refilled with a petrol-based gas. He attacked businesses, left devices in telephone boxes, or on the pavement near Barclays' premises, and all of these within a wide range of locations that had no discernible pattern to them. What was common, however, was that with the compliments of Barclay card message that was placed with each device, the bombs, although still crude, started to become bolder and to have more lethal potential, and police were more fearful now than ever that someone would soon be killed by a Mardi Gras device. Following the last gas cylinder device, which exploded outside the Barclays Bank in Eltham, Mardi Gras again went quiet for two months. Since the beginning of Mardi Gras' campaign, Police and Barclays senior management had adopted the strategy of a media blackout to prevent mass panic and any possible copycat attacks or threats. In the two months of quiet, the bomber had pondered how best he could exert more pressure on Barclays to cave into his demands and so he decided to self-publicise his campaign. On April 3rd, 1996, the offices of the Daily Mail newspaper received a long rambling letter from Mardi Gras himself, detailing his demands, a list of the 25 devices that had been sent and planted up to that point, including pictures of a prototype new device, and a threat to the welfare of Barclays customers and staff in public, at work, or even at home, if an acknowledgement was not published within the mail within a seven-day time limit. This letter forced the hand of police and Barclays, and they now had no choice but to go public. At a packed press conference, Detective Superintendent John Beadle tried to play down the perceived threat, telling the assembled media, I must stress that the real threat to the public is low. The fear of crime is much greater than the reality. My advice is to report anything suspicious to the police, but the public should carry on their normal daily lives. The media response to this was electric. Double-page newspaper features and television reports were everywhere, describing Mardi Gras devices, 
their potential for harm and their construction, and the campaign and communication that police and Barclays had received from the bomber to date. The bomber's motives were examined, and controversial, almost celebrity figures at the time, such as former Deputy Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police, John Stalker, contributed to sensationalist newspaper articles, in which the bomber was profiled, and the general public were invited to become armchair detectives to identify Mardi Gras. Just over two weeks after his letter to the Daily Mail, Mardi Gras struck again. On April 20th, 1996, a black plastic bin liner containing a device was placed in an alleyway that was adjacent to the Ealing Broadway branch of Barclays in West London. At exactly 3 o'clock p.m., it exploded. For the first time since the initial devices had been sent nearly 18 months before, Mardi Gras had caused real harm. Three people who were stood in close proximity to the device were peppered with shotgun pellets that were travelling at over 300 feet per second and required hospitalisation to tend to their wounds, which although serious were not life-threatening. When the remnants of the device were examined by forensics, it was discovered that this was the new device that Mardi Gras had detailed in his letter to the Daily Mail. It was more of an updated version of the classic video case device that Mardi Gras had first used, but it now contained a single homemade barrel acting as a compression chamber. This then gave the shot in the Winchester clay pigeon cartridge contained within more force and a better general direction. This was an alarming escalation, and of course the media fed upon this with newspaper reports and television appeals continuing. Barclays Bank chairman at the time, Andrew Buxton, was interviewed on a BBC News television broadcast just after this latest attack, and he revealed that Barclays were preparing to take the most drastic steps available to protect itself, its staff and customers. He revealed that this would even mean closing branches down if this was deemed a necessary precaution. This revelation was to change the course of the investigation and provide a major hurdle to Operation Heath, because Mardi Gras simply decided to go to ground again. It was later revealed that he'd not simply given up his blackmail campaign, but he'd decided to muddy the waters by not altogether changing targets, but rather focusing, also, upon an additional one. In the mid-1990s, as is still the case now, UK high street supermarkets were locked in a war for custom and profit. The coveted premier spot had been held by Sainsbury's for many years, but in 1995 they were toppled by an arch-rival in one of the canonical Big Four supermarkets in the UK, Tesco. This made widespread news and was all over the press and television at the time, and somebody took note, because on the 10th of July 1996, a letter arrived at the Sainsbury's head office in central London. It began, Welcome to the Mardi Gras experience. The police will be able to fill in the general details of the deal, as we are almost old chums. You have seven days to respond, followed by a death or glory outcome. Now there's a deal that's a boardroom winner. The letter went on to explain that Mardi Gras had not called amnesty on his campaign against Barclays. They would be his focus again at some stage, but he had now turned his attention to Sainsbury's. Operation Heath now had the unenviable task of majorly beginning their whole inquiry again. It had been a daunting enough task looking through the list of possible persons of interest that they'd gained from Barclays, 
Now they had to look again from the beginning of the list to see if any of the people they'd already cross-checked had a connection to Sainsbury's as well. All the while bearing in mind that there may be no connection at all and that Mardi Gras had just chosen two of the most famous UK established names at random to target. Police responded again using Mardi Gras chosen form of communication of the personal columns but this time using the Daily Mail newspaper. The response read as follows. Mardi Gras, we are ready to help and give value. Contact us on the verification number. But again they heard nothing. Mardi Gras had gone to ground yet again. It was to be December the 17th 1996 before he surfaced again and again with a new tactic. A letter arrived at the Daily Mail offices containing a threat that unless Sainsbury's acknowledged that he was back and paid the ransom that he demanded, Mardi Gras would begin shooting its customers with an improvised crossbow device, an example of which he detailed in the letter. It would be mounted inside a large reinforced Sainsbury's bag and would fire through a prepared slit in the side after being activated by a fishing line attached to the trigger. This could be operated in a crowd of people and Mardi Gras himself could escape with ease, blending in as a shopper with a Sainsbury's bag. There was also a photograph of a lone female shopper enclosed, ominously marked with a label reading, Targeted for Action. Police believed that this threat was a bluff, however, as it would require Mardi Gras to operate in person at the moment of impact, a world away from the remoteness and safety of the distance and anonymity that he'd maintained up to then. As a result his bluff was called and under request from SO13 the Daily Mail did not publish the photograph as requested. A further letter followed on January the 7th 1997 which now contained two photographs again of lone female shoppers and a homemade crossbow bolt. This demand was again ignored and following this Mardi Gras again disappeared into the woodwork. This was to be his longest gap but also the precursor for his deadliest, but thankfully final, phase. While Mardi Gras had gone to ground yet again, Operation Heath continued in earnest, and the Metropolitan Police utilised two different types of profile in hunting for him. One was a psychological profile delivered by Professor Bill Tafoya, who'd been the lead profiler of the FBI's Unabomber Task Force. Tafoya was to produce a profile that was to prove ultimately very close to the mark. He wrote that the reason for targeting Barclays and Sainsbury's could have been a simpler reason as having been insulted by a member of staff there, buying soiled goods or having a credit card application or loan refused. He claimed that the bomber would be male, middle-aged, of average intelligence, would have a boring or menial job if he worked and would be known as someone who was known to harbour grudges. He'd feel undervalued, he'd live in London and would be a loner, although possibly one who had been married in the past. Examining the devices sent by Mardi Gras, and in what was a deliberate ploy to draw out a response from him by insulting him, Tafoya suggested that the devices were unsophisticated, highlighting his constant use of readily available ammunition, and he said that if Mardi Gras had the intellectual capacity to make more complex bombs, than he would have done so by now. Playing with fire a bit there, eh? 
The other profile utilised by the Met, and again one that was to prove accurate, was a geographical one. Using the maxim that a criminal strikes within defined routines, or to put it more simply, where you live defines the parameters in which you act, the details of Mardi Gras' existing 24 attacks were entered into a US prototype profiling software called Orion. It has already become clear to investigators that the majority occurred in the west and southeast of London. The profile created by the Orion software highlighted a peak over the W4 district of the city, specifically Chiswick. This again was to later prove uncannily accurate. But frustratingly, although it was a focal point, it didn't serve to narrow down the field of suspects, except to confirm to police that Mardi Gras was local to the West London area and how many people live in West London. And then Mardi Gras returned after 11 months. On Saturday, November 15th, 1997, three branches of Sainsbury's were targeted in a return to Mardi Gras' preferred method of device, the video case explosive. Copies of the film Grand Canyon were left in abandoned bags of groceries in the Sainsbury's stores in Greenford, West Ealing and South Roislip. All three were devices of the shotgun cartridge type, designed to fire pellets into the face or body of the person opening them. But as investigators were becoming used to seeing from Mardi Gras, there were modifications to this design yet again. The barrels had been reinforced and angled, the shot was now much better packed, and the method of disposal showed a newer ingenious twist. Mardi Gras had got customers to take the devices into the stores at random. Each video had a blue sticker attached to it with the following message. Lost videos, £5 reward. If you find this video, take it to your local Sainsbury video section and claim a £5 reward. Perhaps realising that by physically leaving items instead of posting them out, Mardi Gras ran the risk of being captured on CCTV. By someone else taking the device into its intended target, Mardi Gras was ensuring that as much distance as possible between capture and himself was placed. And then Mardi Gras followed with a double attack just 10 days later in yet another refinement of his MO. Again the video cassette devices were used, but this time the message on the stickers contained a red dot with a small sticker saying, Any video bearing a red dot has been cleared by Sainsbury's security staff. The first device was found on the driveway of an empty house in Chislehurst in Kent, about 500 yards from the local Sainsbury's. It had already exploded, but chillingly had been left opposite a primary school. An hour later, a customer to Sainsbury's burnt ash store in Lee Green handed in a device that had been left outside in a bag of shopping. SO13 quickly arrived and disarmed the device. Eleven days later, on the 6th of December 1997, a 73-year-old lady named Joan Kane, who'd caught a bus outside Sainsbury's in West Ealing, arrived home with her shopping to discover that she'd somehow picked up an extra shopping bag. She fished out a device that she was innocently examining and was only saved with the timely intervention of a visiting neighbour who recognised the danger instantly. Sadly, just ten weeks later, Joan died very suddenly from a very aggressive form of leukaemia. Her last weeks were spent in fear and suffering what must have been horrific flashbacks of 
how close she'd came to serious injury or even death. Her peace of mind was destroyed and she became a shell of her former self, a fact that her doctors were in no doubt accelerated her condition. A few days before Christmas 1997, a change in police strategy had been decided upon and a decision had been made to pay Mardi Gras, hoping to catch him in the act of receiving his money. Working on the theory that Mardi Gras would next strike again within his chosen ground of West or South East London, a decision was made to blanket every Sainsbury's store in each area with covert surveillance and hope that they'd get lucky and catch him planting a device. It was as massive a task as it sounds and one that seemed to have a slim chance of succeeding but police had no other option. Hunting him was getting absolutely nowhere. They opted to post communication agreeing to his latest demands which had now risen to £10,000 per day unlimited. Promotional cards, again, as of the type Mardi Gras had first demanded in his initial communication three years before, were to be made and given away with the Exchange and Mark classified advertising magazine. Then, using a PIN number known only to Mardi Gras, a maximum of ten of these could be used as cash cards. On December the 27th, 1997, the following message from police appeared in the Daily Telegraph personal column. M. Work will be completed and ready for London circulation on Thursday 26th of March 1998. This is the earliest possible date. Hope it meets your schedule. G. Mardi Gras responded to this by planting a bomb in Sainsbury's Chiswick High Road on January 16th 1998, followed by a device left at the beginning of February at what transpired later to have been the same bus stop that Joan Kane had picked up her surplus shopping bag. The former device was found and deactivated. The latter exploded, albeit luckily before it had been collected by anyone. A week later, a member of the public who'd found a bag of shopping left by a cash point nearby to a Sainsbury's in Forest Hill in south-east London had a massively lucky escape when the bag he'd placed onto the passenger seat of his car suddenly detonated as he was driving down the A2. This was followed on March the 4th, 1998 by another shotgun-type device that injured a 17-year-old shop worker quite seriously and was again left at the Forest Hill store. It transpired that the next attack, the Mardi Gras bomber's 36th attack, was to be his final one. On Eltham High Street on the 17th of March, 1998, Mardi Gras was finally caught on CCTV planting a device just yards away from the entrance of the Sainsbury's store. In nine seconds of black and white footage, a man wearing a striped anorak and flat cap is seen striding across Eltham High Street carrying a black bin bag in his gloved right hand. At 11.59am, Mardi Gras is seen to place the bag against the wall of the Sainsbury's and alter it so the barrel of the device inside the bag pointed towards an adjacent bus stop. He then walks off to the left of the camera and disappears from view. Just five minutes pass, during which time many pedestrians pass through the projected firing line, the last one just four seconds before the device detonated at 12.04pm. This brought this part of West London to a standstill that day and I remember this very well because at the time I was in the RAF and I was on my way back to camp that day after visiting home for the weekend 
and I had to travel through London and I got caught up and delayed for hours whilst travelling there because of the chaos that this device had caused. Never forget it. Frustratingly, although this was as close as police had ever come to Mardi Gras, the footage did not show his face. He'd not moved his head even as he crossed the busy high street. After some decision making, it was decided not to release this clip to the media. It could make Mardi Gras go to ground again, and although risky, it was thought this a better strategy than release it and make him ditch the recognisable clothing that he wore. But perhaps because of this, and perhaps the Home Office had finally realised the need to do whatever it took to catch Mardi Gras, regardless of cost, authorization for what was to become Britain's biggest ever covert surveillance operation was granted. A special bank account containing £20,000 was opened, and the following message was placed in the Daily Telegraph personal column. M. Everything on schedule. Arrangements commence 8am, 23rd of the 4th, 1998. We agree on new notified number. No change possible. Thank you. The number remains in place until 8am, 30th of the 4th, 1998 for joining. Then only the daily allowance for each of the 10 items remain. This allowance is unchangeable because of the system. Any difficulties, do not hesitate to write. May be in touch before 23rd of the 4th, 1998, G. On the 23rd of April, the issue of Exchange and Mark containing the promotional cards hit the shelves and the waiting game started. It has, however, never been revealed how the PIN number was passed to Mardi Gras for reasons of operational security. Hundreds of officers watched the areas that the Orion software had identified in West and South East London spreading manpower between as many cash points in the area that they could monitor, and Sainsbury's stores as well in case Mardi Gras would plant further devices. The cash point computers had been pre-programmed to alert a new Scotland Yard control room computer as soon as the secret PIN number was used. They were also programmed to slightly delay any transactions using this PIN number, and by limiting the amount Mardi Gras could withdraw each transaction, it would force him to use cash points more often giving surveillance the chance of getting closer to him. Although Mardi Gras could use universal non-bank specific cash points, if any sort of geographical pattern was noticed, then the area could be actively tracked and Mardi Gras could be caught. At 6.14pm on April 28th, 1998, the alarm sounded at New Scotland Yard. Mardi Gras had removed money from a cash point in Ealing, although the machine used was one of the ones that was not under surveillance. Whilst police waited anxiously to see if Mardi Gras would try again at a different machine, the minutes ticked by. After a number of minutes, the alarm sounded again, this time from a cash point just a mile away from the first withdrawal on the Uxbridge Road in West Ealing. Now this was one of the points under surveillance and surveilling officers were soon reporting back that they had a visual on two men who were drawing attention to themselves due to their suspicious behaviour. The officers were ordered to observe the suspect at that time and to just report back. Both men at the cash point were wearing identical calf-length fawn-coloured raincoats, beige trousers, gloves, wigs and dark glasses. One was wearing a checked cap pulled far down across his head. The other was wearing a flat white cap. The man in the flat white cap 
was also carrying an A4 clipboard with a mirror affixed to the back of it. Both men then got into a dark red Vauxhall Senator car and drove off. At 6.39pm, the car, which was being tailed by a second police surveillance team that had arrived, pulled up at the junction of Bridge Street and Whitton High Street and parked on double yellow lines. Coincidentally, this was almost exactly opposite the business premises that had been the site of Mardi Gras' 14th device. Both men got out of the vehicle and made their way to a cash point a bit further down the road. The one holding the clipboard lowered it mirror side down onto the machine and began pressing numbers, with every action being relayed by radio to the investigating team monitoring back at New Scotland Yard. The pair spent two minutes at the cash point, with the computer back at the yard confirming that this cash point that was being used was at the exact time that the PIN number that had been exclusively passed to Mardi Gras was being activated. The pair removed two withdrawals of £250 each time and had then turned and walked back towards the car, the man with the clipboard holding it in front of his face as he walked away. With confirmation given via what he'd seen over the computer and what the surveillance team had told him, Detective Chief Superintendent Jeff Reese gave the order to move in and arrest the pair. With public safety in mind, this was to be done once the pair were in the vehicle. As soon as they were in the car, undercover officers in vehicles screeched to a halt and boxed in the Vauxhall Senator. The doors were ripped open and both men were pulled out and placed face down on the ground. At 6.54pm, both men heard the following. You are under arrest for demanding money with menaces and also for firearms offences. Footage of the entire arrest was captured on a police video and stills of it are available if you search online. During the next 30 minutes, both men and the vehicle were thoroughly and meticulously searched. The wigs, glasses and hats were removed to reveal two middle-aged men, both of whom looked embarrassed and crushed that they'd been caught. The man in the checked hat gave his name as Ronald Pierce and had nothing of suspicion on his person barring his odd disguises. The man in the white flat cap, the man who'd pressed the buttons at the cash point and who was carrying the anti-surveillance clipboard, was a different story though. In the pockets of his coat, officers found meticulous reconnaissance notes detailing the locations of cash machines that were unobserved by CCTV and route plans of roads to and from each of these that were also CCTV free. There was also found £1,500 in cash and a lead-lined wallet that contained 10 of the promotional cards that had been given away with Exchange and Mart. There was also a scrap of paper with a pin number on it, the same pin that was only known to police and Mardi Gras. When he was asked his name, he replied, Edgar Pierce. Mardi Gras had been caught. The arrested men were brothers Ronald and Edgar Pierce, both of whom lived in Chiswick in West London. The two men were taken off to separate police stations for questioning, and individual teams were dispatched to both of the men's houses to begin a search for evidence. Nothing of importance or relevance, apart from a stun gun, was found at Ronald Pierce's house, but Edgar Pierce's house, however, was again a different story. Armed and explosive specialist officers entered Edgar Pierce's address, number 12 Cambridge Road North, Chiswick, very cautiously. After making an initial sweep of the interior and exterior of the property to ensure there were no booby traps or rigged incendiary devices, 
once it was declared safe, a thorough more in-depth search began. The entire house was carefully and methodically catalogued and searched, along with the gardens and greenhouse of the property, and a rented lock-up garage that was identified as being rented by Edgar Pierce. The official Metropolitan Police inventory of the items removed from Pierce's house makes for chilling reading, and it makes you appreciate just how dangerous and dedicated Pierce, who'd confessed almost immediately to being Mardi Gras, it was the sixth question that was asked to him when he admitted it, how dangerous he actually was. The list of items removed from his property is as follows. Two fully constructed functioning pipe bombs. Four pipe bombs in partial stage of construction. One fully loaded shotgun device on stand. Baseboard to make at least 15 more shotgun devices. 272 12-gauge cartridges. Two crossbows. 12 homemade crossbow bolts. One stun gun, disguised with a false aerial and calculator face to look like a mobile phone. One loaded revolver, complete with 10 modified cartridges. 28 brass shell casings and 81 bullet tops awaiting assembly. 50 rounds of .762 ammunition. 6 butane gas cylinder bombs, ready constructed. Tubing and adhesive. 12 clockwork timers. 39 empty video cassette boxes. 25 spring bolt mechanisms readily constructed, a large number of 12 volt batteries, huge selection of tools and materials necessary to construct further devices, and a large amount of stationary and adhesive similar or identical to ones attached to previous devices. That's a proper scary sounding box of tricks that, isn't it? Hours and hours of fun for a wrong one there, isn't there? Police searching the property were in no doubt that any further distributed devices would have resulted in the death of an innocent person, and the relief that Mardi Gras had been taken off the streets was felt throughout the Met. Whilst Ronald Pierce maintained a no-comment stance throughout his many hours of questioning, Edgar Pierce was the polar opposite. He told the police chapter and verse about the planning and execution of his crimes, how he selected his targets and how he chose his devices, often in a rambling, disjointed manner, as though he was speaking just as he thought of things. He seemed proud of his campaign and was very cooperative, but what was common throughout all of his interviews, however, was that Pierce refused to accept that he had intended to hurt people. He was defensive and he was quick to mitigate himself whenever the potential harm or threat that his devices posed was alluded to. It was everybody's fault bar his. It was someone's fault for opening it, it was someone's fault for picking it up, and so on and so on. The following is an example taken from Pierce's first interview with police, where, knowing he'd been caught red-handed, he early on admitted to being the Mardi Gras bomber. I chose the original six branches due to the access being possible without video surveillance. Those devices were sent through the post, were just picked out of the phone book. I don't recall those details except West London. I don't know why except I had the yellow pages. I got the idea for the devices from another TV programme. This involved spring-loaded cartridges. If you look at the original ones, they were a slight extension of that idea. I have handled guns, but I was able to work out the construction for myself. It was very simplistic. I knew this would end up like a firework. Not much force would result. I didn't have any intention to injure anyone. I tested the devices at home. 
No damage was caused. I primed the cartridge to test the alignment. I didn't detonate a live cartridge. Regarding people opening the mail which I sent, I suppose I wanted the damage to be as minimal as possible. Six branches received devices with a demand letter. I didn't think the response was valid. It was an extortion attempt. I didn't pursue it then because they invited me to meet up and collect a bag of money. I didn't want to do this as I had already suggested a credit card plan which has never changed. Ten cards required international access. I originally asked for it to go in a video magazine. I was looking for a low circulation so that the inserts could be put in. See what I mean about rambling and disjointed and just saying things that whatever comes into his head? So what happens in a person's life to drive them to do such actions? Who was Edgar Pierce and why did he become Mardi Gras? Edgar Eugene Pierce came into the world on the 7th of August 1937, the middle child of Edgar and Constance Pierce. Edgar was a bright child who showed exceptional aptitude in school and at age 11 was sent to Nelson House, an Oxford prep school. Although fees were expensive there and the cost of sending Edgar there put a large financial strain upon the family, they felt it worthwhile as he was their hopes for the Pierce family name to be known outside the working class community in East London that they lived in. But just three years later, Pierce had to leave Nelson House as his family could no longer afford to send him there. Regardless, he gained a respectable education from the Norlington Boys Road School that he attended for the next two years, and then went on to study advertising at Charing Cross Polytechnic upon leaving there. In 1961, at age 24, Pierce married a girl who was four years his junior, Maureen Fitzgerald. By all accounts, the couple were happy. Pierce was doing well in his chosen career of advertising, and the couple had moved to a pleasant house in East Sheen in southwest London. For a few years life was good, but by 1971 Pierce had grown bored with life as an advertising executive and he and Maureen emigrated to South Africa. A year later Maureen gave birth to the couple's daughter Nicola, but the move to South Africa wasn't the new life Pierce had expected it to be. He grew to hate the apartheid system and was also worried by the political situation that threatened to flare up, as the black majority became ever more vocal in their demands for equal rights, and the minority white government waged a war of oppression against them. Finally, by 1976, the Pierce family had had enough, and returned to the UK. In a new venture, Pierce decided to completely reinvent himself. Ever a keen cook, he and Maureen bought a small bistro in Hailing Island in Hampshire, called Jean's Cuisine, but this venture was not a success. Although Pierce was talented as a chef, he displayed talents that nobody there really wanted or welcomed, and custom soon died away, with many people put off by Pierce's fancy cooking. Nobody wanted the exotic dishes that he prepared, and as a result, in what was to become a lifelong pattern when he was faced with difficulty, Pierce began to behave erratically and to drink heavily. He was reported as dressing up like the stereotypical French onion seller, full beret, stripy jumper, onions hanging round his neck, and at least on one occasion was said to have fired a loaded shotgun into the ceiling of the restaurant during a rare evening where the restaurant was full of customers. By the early 1980s, the bank that had been funneling money into the bistro to keep it afloat had refused lending it any more, and when Maureen was diagnosed with cancer in 1982, 
Pierce was forced to sell the business. The bank that had refused Pierce's pleas for a financial lifeline was Barclays. The Pierces moved back to London following this failure and were allocated a council property at number 12 Cambridge Road North in Chiswick. Maureen was to make a recovery from her cancer and Pierce reinvented himself yet again, this time as a property developer. He wasn't a success at this either, although he managed to scrape together a meagre living from it. But the heavy drinking and the brooding about his many failures in life continued, and by 1992 Maureen could stand it no longer. She left the house and Pierce, and the couple separated after 30 years of marriage. Although they were separated, they were to remain on friendly terms, and they saw each other regularly, right up until Pierce's arrest. It transpired later that Pierce would often post his devices on his way to visit Maureen, who lived in south-east London. As he was a perpetual loner with few friends, if any, Pierce instead spent his time between visiting his brother Ronald, his estranged wife Maureen, spending time in the local pub, or brooding in front of the television. To support himself, Pierce began to illegally sublet the upstairs rooms in his council property. He lived solely in the ground floor front room, and having tenants earned Pierce between £600 to £750 per month, which took care of his rent, his groceries, and most importantly, funded his drinking. Now this was already at staggering levels, with Pierce drinking numerous bottles of red wine a day, sometimes up to six, topped up with daytimes either spent in the local pub or in front of the television with at least a dozen cans of cheap strong lager. He would also regularly take trips to France in his car and would arrive back with the vehicle so laden with boxes of red wine that the axles were in danger of giving way. Box after box was then stacked up in the hall of the property. This cycle of destructive heavy drinking continued until in August 1992, Pierce was found collapsed in the street and suffered a fit in the ambulance taking him to hospital. He suffered a further fit once he'd been admitted to hospital and doctors told him that he'd developed epilepsy and suffered some brain damage as a result of these fits, plus his destructive lifestyle. It was also suspected that he'd had suffered a mild stroke that had caused this collapse. After surgery to repair a severely broken shoulder that he'd also received in the fall, Pierce was released from hospital a changed man, but not changed for the better. He recovered physically to an extent from his injuries, but his behaviour became increasingly stranger. Pierce began to obsessively shop, with his choice of supermarket being Sainsbury's, which he was described as being obsessive over. His cupboards and fridge were stocked full with Sainsbury's groceries and cleaning products, yet the house was often in a state of near squalor. His tenants began to notice that Pierce would rise each day at 6am, cook a full roast dinner of exotic foods such as beef, lamb, venison and quail for breakfast, all the while washed down with red wine. He would inevitably be drunk at any time of the day, lived in near squalor and was often lecherous and abusive to some of his female tenants. He also behaved abusively to his neighbours and was generally disliked by the majority of people who knew him, who he considered himself to be a cut above. One neighbour was later to tell how Pierce deliberately flooded her flat on one occasion, gave her teenage son a live bullet and placed piles of shotgun cartridges on her doorstep. Her husband was later to assault Pierce for this, leaving him needing hospital treatment for a fractured jaw. 
After his arrest, several of Pierce's tenants were later to testify to his bizarre behaviour and cold-hearted nature. Graham Hurst, Pierce's former lodger, said, To him, everyone was worthless, almost beneath him. He was the type of man who wouldn't bat an eyelid if one of his explosions wiped out an entire family. He was as cold as a reptile, totally and utterly unconcerned about the welfare of anyone else. But he surpassed even himself when talking about his brother-in-law John, who was dying of stomach cancer. He said, That man's always whinging. Why doesn't he just get on with it? By 1994, this further downward spiral had continued and Pierce was still brooding away in his ground floor room. He was still suffering pain from the shoulder that he'd badly broken two years before and was topping himself up with copious amounts of painkillers and alcohol and lived constantly in front of the television. Then one day he saw a documentary about a man named Rodney Wichello. Now Wichello is infamous of course throughout the annals of UK crime as being the Heinz baby food blackmailer who in the 1980s contaminated several jars and cans of pet and baby food with razor blades and caustic soda and replaced them on supermarket shelves in an attempt to extort money from the manufacturers Pedigree Chum and Heinz. I featured a full account of Wichello's crimes in the second episode of this series in the episode entitled Blackmail Brutality and Baby Food in case it's one that you missed it's a fascinating case and one I recommend having a listen to. This documentary about Wichello made Pierce sit up and take notice in fascination and a plan began to formulate in his mind about how he could strike back at the society that he considered had dealt him a bad hand in life. He believed he could do much better than Wichello and that finally his time for greatness had arrived. Pierce's advertising background was put to use, the result being the striking Reservoir Dog style calling card and the name Mardi Gras was chosen because it's the French translation of Fat Tuesday, and it had been a Tuesday when Pierce had formulated the idea for his extortion campaign. So this then, simple as it sounds, was the genesis of the Mardi Gras bomber. Pierce admitted that he'd tinkered with clocks and their working parts to experiment if the workings could be used in a device. He was an experienced and capable handyman despite his alcoholism, and he constructed each of the devices at home himself, the majority in his greenhouse in his back garden. He was often seen in there for hours on end, quite late into the night, and a neighbour, William Branson, recalled, We would often see him sitting in his greenhouse late at night. I just presumed he wanted to get away from it all, and maybe he had a TV in there or something. Each type of device was tested on a remote plot of land nearby during Mardi Gras periods of inactivity. Each down period was simply Pierce refining his strategy, constantly practicing with different devices and testing them to seek improvements. He was patient and cautious, but no less determined and focused upon his campaign. It was practices like this that convinced police that this was in no way a PR exercise or a joke that went too far, as Pierce was later to claim, and that Pierce had a calculating rather than a confused mind. For example, Pierce was to admit that he deliberately targeted his local pub, the Crown and Anchor in Chiswick, because he rightly suspected that the press were withholding news of his campaign and he wanted to ensure his devices were being successfully delivered. By sending the device there and then going into the pub for a drink afterwards, 
he could check as to whether his devices were being successfully delivered by thinking that if so, the bomb would be the predominant if not sole topic of conversation in the pub amongst staff and customers. And he wasn't wrong. News of the Pierce brothers' arrests had leaked to the media within 24 hours, and 12 Cambridge Road North were soon under siege from reporters. A factual but extremely brief statement was issued by Deputy Assistant Commissioner John Greve, confirming nothing more than the brothers' names and ages, and a scant few details of the operation that had led to their arrest. The press was left to research the brothers' lives for their headlines and articles, whilst on the following day, both Edgar and Ronald were charged on the following counts. Conspiracy to blackmail Barclays Bank Conspiracy to blackmail Sainsbury's Conspiracy to possess firearms with intent to endanger life At 10am on the morning of Friday the 30th of April 1998, the Pierce brothers appeared in a 30-minute hearing at Horsefream Road Magistrates Court in central London, where both were remanded in custody awaiting trial and for nearly a year were held on remand as Category A prisoners, Edgar at Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh in south-east London, and Ronald at Her Majesty's Prison High Down in Surrey. During this time, they made several interim court appearances, where a total of 20 charges relating to the Mardi Gras bombing campaign were listed against them. A trial date was set to begin at the Old Bailey on February 5, 1999, where the brothers were expected to enter a guilty plea. Edgar was expected to put forward the mitigating circumstances of diminished responsibility due to a result of his 1992 collapse and subsequent epilepsy and minor stroke. By the time the morning of the 5th of February arrived, the Pierce brothers were facing a total of 20 charges. Edgar faced all 20 which were as follows. 9 charges of blackmail against Sainsbury's and Barclays Bank three charges of causing actual bodily harm, one charge of wounding with intent, one charge of causing an explosion, one charge of intending to cause an explosion, one charge of possessing explosives, two charges of illegally possessing prohibited weapons, one charge of illegally possessing an improvised explosive device with intent to commit blackmail, one charge of illegally possessing an improvised explosive device with intent to endanger life. Ronald was jointly charged with nine of these offences, these being four charges of blackmail against Sainsbury's, one charge of causing actual bodily harm, one charge of illegally possessing an improvised explosive device with intent to endanger life, one charge of wounding with intent, one charge of possessing a prohibited weapon, one charge of possessing explosives. When each charge was read out, however, a not guilty plea was entered by both brothers. A trial date was then set for April the 7th, 1999. On April the 7th, 1999, when each charge was again read out to Edgar Pierce, having had time to reconsider his plea, he pleaded guilty to each. Ronald Pierce pleaded guilty to possession of a stun gun, but not guilty to the remaining charges that he faced. Edgar had steadfast refused to discuss the extent of Ronald's involvement, and after lengthy consideration, no evidence was offered on the remaining charges against him, although one charge of conspiracy to blackmail Sainsbury's was ordered to lie on file. Ronald was sentenced to 12 months imprisonment for possession of the stun gun, but as he'd already served this time on remand, he was from that moment a free man. He was released, 
and Edgar was returned to Her Majesty's prison Belmarsh to await sentence in a week later. On Thursday the 14th of April, Edgar Pierce again stood in front of Mr Justice Hyam in court number one at the Old Bailey, this time to await his fate. Medical professionals employed by Pierce's counsel had argued that Pierce was guilty based on the grounds of diminished responsibility as a result of a combination of hypertension, heavy alcohol use, a bleed on the brain due to his 1992 collapse, and bizarrely, that the purpose of his action was to see if he could pull off a successful PR campaign. Takes all sorts, doesn't it really? Mr Justice Hyam was having none of this, however, and he found no sort of defence based upon diminished responsibility to have any valid grounds. He believed that prison rather than hospitalisation was more suitable for Pierce, and he reflected this in his summing up, telling Pierce, These offences were committed by you in the course of a campaign of extortion. Your apparent intention was to obtain a large amount of money, first from Barclays Bank and then from Sainsbury's. Your plan was to terrorise the public, particularly staff and customers of Barclays and Sainsbury's, by threats and by the planting of weapons designed to cause physical injury. Some of the devices which you used had the potential to cause death to anyone who was within range. By good fortune alone, those devices did not kill anyone. Your motivations were greed and an insatiable appetite for notoriety. These offences were so serious that only a very substantial custodial sentence can be justified. It is also necessary to impose exemplary sentences to deter others who might be minded to offend as you have done. Pierce received prison sentences totaling 224 years, but as these were set to run concurrently, he would only serve the length of the maximum sentence, which was 21 years in total. Mardi Gras remained impassive as he was sentenced, having been long expecting it, and he was taken back to Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh to begin his prison sentence. He served many years in obscurity, rarely if ever mentioned in the headlines, then he was released. Edgar Pierce is now nearly 81 years old, and although he's no longer in prison, he is in very poor health and lives quietly at an undisclosed location, once again alone. The campaign of the Mardi Gras bomber had cost dearly. Barclays had had to pay an extra £140,000 in additional security as a result, and Sainsbury's were an estimated £640,000 down in lost business. Pierce had gained just £1,500 from his whole campaign, and he'd held this for all of 30 minutes. He never got to spend a single penny gained from his extortion plot, and he lost more than a decade of his life behind bars for a campaign that, though largely unsuccessful, was driven by a determined and cold mind. The detective who led the hunt for Mardi Gras, Detective Superintendent Jeff Reese, said after Pierce was sentenced, this was a callous, calculating individual who was wholly indifferent to the possibility that the devices might cause death or serious injuries. It's a miracle no one was killed. To this day, police still use tactics learned from the Mardi Gras investigation and operation to capture him as part of a training exercise teaching police how to combat any extortion threats that may be received. I've always been surprised over the years that the Mardi Gras campaign isn't more familiar than it is. It's a remarkable terrorist extortion campaign because you can't dress it up, that's what it was. Yet how familiar is it to people? 
and for all of Pierce's refinements of his devices, his care not to be seen and to stay remote, and his overall commitment to his campaign, he was even less successful than Wichello, who at least managed to spend about £18,000 before he was caught. I can remember following the coverage in the newspapers at the time that Mardi Gras was operating, and of course I won't forget being stuck in London that afternoon with a heavy kit bag lugging that through the tube. That was never fun, that day especially not, because it was a day that I decided to bring down from my mum's my full collection of X-Files videos in a separate bag. I even had extra gear to lug around that day, so cheers for that Mardi Gras. So why did he do it? I'm as inclined to believe that his was as much a need to strike back at society and prove himself a success at something, just as much as a get-rich-quick scheme. I mean, £10,000 a day is just ludicrous. He's not a premiership footballer, is he? And what would he have done with the cash should he have found some foolproof way to get it? Drink himself to death, most likely, from the sound of it. And he wasn't a success after this. All he gained was a 21-year prison sentence, and pretty soon to become all but forgotten. I mean, had you heard of him before this episode? Yet Pierce was in turn the influence for several other wrong'uns who have since decided to have a go at a get-rich-quick scheme, some of whom we may meet in a future episode of the show. Biggest hint I can possibly drop there? What these people never understand and fail to see is that their schemes will always fall down. Each unsuccessful campaign teaches investigators something new, so if they aren't traced through the campaign, they'll more likely be caught at the most vulnerable point for the extortionist, collecting the ransom. And they deserve to be caught, because the majority of people who would want a better lifestyle are willing to work for it by honest means. Nobody has any sort of entitlement to hold people at ransom and create fear and endanger lives because they think society owes them a better life. Society owes these people nothing. Yet I'm afraid there'll always be one such misguided individual out there with an antisocial personality disorder who reads and hears about people like Edgar Pierce and thinks, oh I can go one better than him, and puts another campaign in motion. Just another one on a conveyor belt though really, until they become the one to influence another. Now I don't mean to sound cynical with saying that, but I recognise greed, and I don't think that greed is ever going anywhere is it? There isn't much readily available to research about the crimes of Edgar Pierce, but I do recommend a book entitled Welcome to the Mardi Gras Experience by author Simon Cooper. It was a massive help in researching and writing this episode, and it further contains a chapter in it that looks also at the crimes of our old friend from episode 2 of this series, Rodney Wicello. The usual links are up in the usual place, and for further reading, the blog posts concerning Pierce's crimes can be found with the same title as this episode on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog. So thankfully, no one was killed as a direct result of one of Pierce's devices, although I believe he must hold some level of culpability, at least some shame and guilt, of accelerating the onset of poor Joan Kane's leukaemia through the terror his device caused her. No charges could ever be brought against him for this, but it can't have helped the situation any, can it? Wherever Pierce is now, I hope that he's had many years to contemplate his actions and he does feel some form of regret or empathy for them. I could only hope so, or he could now just be an elderly man living somewhere alone, one who now and again still contemplates sending out a message because he even still today feels a grudge against society. What are your thoughts? 
Thank you very much for joining me for this episode. I hope that you've all found it informative and entertaining, and I'm hoping that you'll share your thoughts as ever in the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group on the episode thread that is now up. You can get in touch if you're so inclined to on the usual social media channels, always the True Crime Enthusiast or a slight variation of that, and the links are always in the show notes. And if you do look for me, and if you see the logo, then you found me, that's the badger. If you also wish to join the show as a Patreon supporter, then for a very reasonable contribution, you can get access to the now seven bonus episodes of the show, exclusive to Patreons only, with the latest going up just a couple of days ago. Our other tiers are also available as well, and the link's in the show notes with my social media contacts. I shall be back next week to recount another case, which I look forward to you joining me for. So until we next speak, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all well, and I shall catch you again soon. Take care, guys. Have a good week, and goodbye for now.